Um, my caterpillar disappeared. Did it chew through? No, I think it's burrowing. Did it become one with the soil? I too have to become one with the soil occasionally. I went down there a couple of days ago and I looked at it and I couldn't find him. So I opened it up and I like looked through everything. I couldn't find him. So I was like kind of shifting around the dirt a little bit. I still don't know where he is. I think he's just like deep in the soil. Because I think he's probably just trying to turn into a moth. Probably. So. Probably. Yeah, I've not seen Remy for a couple of days. So, I think it's just, they know that the weather is changing. And, like, I don't know how long it takes for it to pupate. Because some take a week, some take months. Mm-hmm. Who knows? We'll see. I'll yep, just keep we'll on see. misting every once in a while and hope it works out. Yep. <laughs> How do you do? How uh, you doing? I'm Grace and that's Rachel. I'm Rachel. That's Grace. This is White Claw Mango. Ew. Because I'm basic. <laughs> I, just, I don't like mango. I love mango. I don't know why. I love mango. Tropical. Welcome, to, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, my audio might sound a little bit odd because I am in an empty room so it's probably gonna be echoey you'll probably hear everything in my house it's cool it's cool it's fine it works thank you thank you for joining us on this fine when this comes out monday (laughs) yeah i'm just chugging iced coffee yes iced coffee 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 is very necessary Anyway, um... Anywho, where are we this week? Today we are in Sligo. I believe it's Sligo? Yes, Sligo. Okay. Sligo, Ireland. So the earliest people of Sligo were a group of hunter-gatherers who lived around the shores of Loch Gara, and the first farming communities were established in the same area around 4000 BC. That's so long ago. ago. What Um, in the... (laughs) According to legend, the first settlers were the... um, I'm so sorry if I don't say this correctly. Um, I'm trying. Fear bullying? It looks like fur bulg, but I know that's not correct. Uh, They were defeated in a great battle by the Dadanan... Dadanan? Dadanan. Dadanan. (laughs) Dedenin, <laughs> 2,000 years before Christianity and 700 years before Troy. Okay. Uh, the last resting place. Um, it, it's so it's so cool. Like the first uh, cemetery in mm-hmm. the area is the cemetery of Caramore, which oh, has wow. 
stone circles, cairns, and um, Sligo has the largest group of megalithic remains in Ireland, which I think is mm-hmm. pretty cool. That is super cool. So Caramore stands near the Nocnare uh, mountain, which is apparently, it's, a, it's said to be the last resting place of Queen Maeve. Ooh. Apparently she attained the status of Celtic goddess. Sligo is rich in, like, archaeological remains, and since Ireland was the only country in Western Europe that wasn't colonized by Rome, the ancient infrastructures, like, a lot of that is still there, like, uninfluenced. Yeah. Which is really cool. Yep, yep. It is gorgeous. It is wonderful. However, it was not immune from Viking raids, which... (laughs) Because, I mean, the town was, like, easily accessible because it's right yes, on the it's sea. right on, yeah. Uh, a lot of the early Christian churches and communities were destroyed in 807. That is... Yes. Eight. When so 5,000 Vikings landed in northeast Lego. That's a good number of Vikings, too. That's a lot. But they were finally defeated in 1014 at the Battle of Clontarf. So 200-something years? Yeah. No? Yeah. The town of Sligo has its beginning. uh, So, like, there's a lot of, like, Anglo-Norman occupation, um, obviously, during that time. And then um, when Maurice Fitzgerald built the castle of Sligo in 1239. Oh, wait, there's a castle? Yes. What? And the Dominican Abbey was founded in 1252. The submission of the Irish chieftains to the English throne in 1500 uh, sort of marked... Kind of marked a turning point um, in a bad way for Sligo. There's mm. a lot of insurrection and um, ruin. It was just all over the countryside. The Sli- Sligo town, including Dominican Abbey, was burned in 1642 by Sir Frederick Hamilton, and 300 people were killed by rampaging soldiers. Oh. My source for this, which I forgot to say, was MotherEarthTravel.com. Oh, cool. Mother Earth um, Travel. And on this source, it said, in the Cromwellian destruction, women and children were the main targets of genocide. Irish Catholics were forbidden to own land, and the dispossessed were shipped to the Caribbean as slaves to the West Indian sugar plantations, and 63,000 acres of Sligo land were handed over to Cromwellian soldiers. Okay. The French Revolution. Okay, so so because of the French Revolution in 1789, a lot of like people in Ireland, especially like intellectuals and, and mainly peasants, like because they were so impoverished and mm-hmm. sort of led to the same sort of conditions as the French Revolution, which led to um, the rise of the United Irishmen in 1798. The French helped them out because I mean they would pretty much do anything shocking. at that point to shocking. go against England. Shocking. I mean but not shocking. <laughs> right. The active union in 1800 uh, consolidated British rule in Ireland and there was a lot of poverty but there's also a lot of fucking people which made a lot of different a lot of towns grow pretty rapidly. Yeah. Because there were a lot of new merchants and like landlords landlorders i mean they <laughs> are technically landlorders yeah. uh and landlords uh there there's a lot of new industry including like brewing and distilling including like 
um, linens and leather trades and mm-hmm. stuff like that, which helped grow the town even more. Yeah. And the port of Sligo developed rapidly, and a railway arrived in the town in 1860. Disaster struck again with the cholera epidemic in 1832, causing a lot of death. Like a mm-hmm. lot in Sligo. A lot. Yeah. Um, more in Sligo than anywhere else in Ireland. People were left dead in the streets and like whole families were wiped out. Bram Stoker, the obviously, you know, the author of Dracula, yeah. um, a lot of his imagination, like a lot of that stuff came from his mother who was from Sligo, who told stories of like coffin makers knocking on doors in the night looking for corpses of victims and of victims wow. being like buried or alive and stuff like that. Okay, that's concerning. Yes, so it was it was a rough time. Mm. And then on top of that, there's the famine of 1847, which made it even worse. Obviously, because you know the potato crop failed, and no other alternative crops were made available, especially for peasants. Um, So again, bodies in the streets and immigration ships filled, and the countryside just like. People just left. Mm-hmm. So Sligo sort of became like a ghost town almost with like no children and schools and like fields completely bare. And then, um, but then like a resurgence in like Irish nationalism uh, began in 1916 with the Easter Rebellion. And the I didn't Easter look this Easter Rebellion? Up. Yeah. Did it happen on Easter? Hold on. I gotta look this up. It's okay. I, I just thought I saw face. snow falling. I was like, no, it's not cold enough for that. What? It's really not. It's cold enough to make your nose run, but it's not cold enough to snow. No. It's, yeah, no. Um, it was during Eastern Easter week in April of 1916. Okay, so it was during Easter. So today, Sligo is a really prosperous town and some really great places to visit. I mean, I don't know about currently, but there's mm-hmm. the Sligo Abbey, um, the Caramore Megalithic Cemetery, which I would love to visit. I mean, I really, I would love to visit anywhere that's not where we currently are. <laughs> True. Um, In all honesty. One thing I didn't mention was that um, William Yeats, you know, the fam- the famous poet? Yes. He was actually from here, and there's actually the Yeats building. From Sligo? A, yeah, and it's okay. a library center and gallery, which mm. I think is pretty cool. And then, of course, there's, like, the beautiful countryside and, I mean, the ports. I mean, it's a cool yeah. place. You should just go <laughs> when you can. When it's <laughs> Go safe. to Yeats. Castle. Wait, Ye- was that what it was called? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Go to Yeats Castle and please don't yeet anything off of it. Oh, um. <laughs> oh I closed it. It's not a castle. It's um the Yeats building. Currently, travel oh. is restricted, so you're going to have to wait for that. As a side note, there is uh, something on SoundCloud called Yeet. <laughs> yeet. <laughs> All right. You go. I go. My turn. Alrighty, so um, my story this week is the disappearance of Melissa Mann. Okay, so first and foremost, before I actually get into my sources and the story, I do have to say my story contains a brief mention of sexual assault that may be triggering to some listeners. So if that pertains to you, I advise that you please fast forward about 20 to 30 minutes to Grace's story. But I can't fast forward. God damn. No, no you can't. Um, you actually have to sit here and listen. I'm so sorry about that. 
Okay, so uh, my sources are herald.ireland, irishtimes.com, irishexaminer.com, independent.ie, and I have like five articles from that. I have three articles from herald.ireland. <laughs> I love when like local like papers and stuff keep up with stories. The journal.ireland, a podcast, um, the podcast name is Mens Rea. It's episode 40. Highly recommend it. This person went extremely into detail, and it was just wonderful. I mean, it wasn't great because of the topic, but it was wonderful to listen to. Highly recommend. Yeah, it's always good to listen to really, like, well-researched and... Yes, 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 yes. Um, RTE.Ireland, thefreelibrary.com, and casemine.com. So, Melissa Mahan was the youngest of 10 children born to Mary and Frederick Mahan on March 10th, 1992. Melissa had been des- has been described as small for her age and is looking very vulnerable and fragile. The family had its ups and downs, and two of the children were taken into child protective services, and some of the children were placed on the protected children's register. Oh. Then in 2005, Mary and Frederick decided to move their family back to their hometown of Sligo. They felt that this area in the west of Ireland would be much safer for their children um, than London, where they were currently living. Mm. This was finally executed in April of 2006 when Mary, Frederick, and their three youngest daughters moved into a house in the Rathbrown estate within Sligo. Melissa and her sister, Liana, soon became close with Shirley, Heidi, and Samantha Dunbar through school. They became frequent visitors at the Dunbar home, that is, until Leanne had a falling out with one of the Dunbar girls, and she stopped, you know, going to hang out with him, as you do when you're a kid. Right. But this did not stop Melissa from frequenting the home. Her relationship with Samantha Dunbar and Samantha's father, Ronnie, became increasingly close. Melissa's parents were not happy with this friendship since Melissa began getting into trouble at school and even skipping school. Ooh, so being, you know, a normal person. Uh, actually, Melissa and the Dunbar girls were once caught in an attempted break-in earlier that summer. Oh, okay, never So mind. she actually, she actually is getting in trouble. <laughs> okay, so I was thinking, like, she, like, got in trouble at school, like, was skipping or got caught cheating or something like that nope like actually breaking and entering <laughs> okay so, so that one yep yep and actually what i didn't write this down but one of the police officers said that melissa seemed very you know scared and skittish when she was um approached because of this but the dunbar girls were not oh so like the dunbar dunbar girls had done it frequently in the past they were like yeah okay <laughs> yeah exactly Melissa would often tag along with the Dunbars visiting local beauty spots, um, the beach, or even just driving around in Ronnie's blue Fiat Cinquecento. Sometimes Ronnie would bring the girls with him to his football games, which Wait. Ronnie is the dad. Okay, 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 yes. Yeah, Ronnie is the dad. That's what I thought. I got, we were talking about girls and all of a sudden. Ronnie, yeah, yeah no. 
that's the dad. Um, around this time, Melissa was also struggling to adapt to her life at her own home. She was missing familial uh, structure and support, so Ronnie decided to take her under his wing, and Melissa now, f- now felt that she was part of the Dunbar family, which mm. I get it. Yeah, a lot of people have that, like, second family. That's yeah. just, like, their friend's Your family, family is my second family. My family is your second family. Right. Just, yeah, yeah. Around August, Melissa's brother and his wife and baby came to visit the family from England. In order to accommodate the added bodies in the house, Melissa was to sleep on a blow-up mattress in her parents' room. The morning that their company was due to leave, Mary Mahan woke up to find Melissa was gone. Evidence pointed to Melissa creeping out of the bedroom and climbing out the living room window. Why? That's so random. She wanted to get out. Okay. Mary immediately knew to check with the Dunbars. Samantha opened the door, but then proceeded to slam it shut when she saw who it was. A few minutes later, Ronnie opened the door and informed Mary that Melissa was in the shed in the back. I'm so- what? Samantha and Melissa, like, Samantha dragged Melissa to the shed in the back. Yeah, no, I get, I get it. It just sounded so weird. It is, it, it makes, it, I guess it'll make it makes sense a little later. sense in a, yeah, in, a, in okay, just a okay. minute. Okay. Melissa was brought into the kitchen where Mary confronted her and supposedly hit her in the back. Later, Ronnie told his then-girlfriend that Mary beat Melissa so much that she would wet herself. Oh, no. Mary later denied this. Oh. Melissa was taken home, but she ran away again. But when Mary went back to the Dunbars, Ronnie told her that he had not seen Melissa. She assumed he was lying, but went home and decided to wait for Melissa to come home of her own accord. But she did call the guardie to let them know what was going on. Okay. At this point, Melissa claimed that her parents were physically abusing her and her father was sexually abusing her. Oh, shit. So she ran to the aid of Ronnie Dunbar, of course. Mm-hmm. Knowing this, Ronnie had lied to Mary the second time she had come around He did not tell the authorities, though, because Melissa had not made a formal statement against her parents, Mm -hmm. so she would have been taken straight back to them. Yeah, I thought that's what what happened when he said no. Yeah. Melissa was missing from her home for three weeks before her parents reported her missing to the guardie. When Ronnie was questioned again, he claimed to not know where she was, but that he would ask around and find out. He later told the guardie and Melissa's social worker, Catherine Farrelly, that he had made contact with her, and he became the authorities' literal only contact. She would only contact him. She would not talk to the authorities whatsoever. However, Ronnie Dunbar did um, arrange with Miss Farrelly for Melissa to meet in order to just discuss the entire situation and what's going on. Okay. This meeting took place in a secluded area of Sligo. During the meeting, Melissa informed the social worker that her father had sexually abused her and that her mother physically abused her, including putting cigarettes out on her body. Oh, shit. Ronnie's girlfriend at the time, Angelique Sheridan, was beginning to be concerned for Melissa's safety with the Dunbars. Melissa had told Angelique that she believed she was the reincarnation of Cleopatra and Ronnie was her reincarnated king. Oh. It was even more concerning to her when Melissa told her that she could see ghosts and demons and that Ronnie could capture these in the tattoos on his arms. Okay. Um. 
Mm. Heidi, who was the youngest daughter, then informed Angelique that Melissa was in love with Ronnie and was three months pregnant by him. She then had a conversation with Ronnie informing him that he had to turn Melissa over to the authorities or he would get in trouble for harboring her at the house. Besides the fact that you just heard that she's in love with a man who could literally be her father. This story's wild. Yeah. Um, to which he replied, if he was going to prison over Melissa, he would kill her, strangle her. That night, Angelique ended the relationship with Ronnie, but did not inform the authorities of what she was told because she did not truly believe that he would do anything to harm Melissa. Oh, see, that's always the thing. Like, you always, you're like, I know this person. They're not going to do anything crazy and dramatic, but, like, Mm -hmm. Time and time again, we're proven wrong. Yes. Ronnie did eventually turn Melissa over to the authorities, but not before Mary felt the need to tell the social worker that Melissa no longer had a family and she would beat her if she saw her. Keep in mind, Mary is Melissa's mother. Right. Yeah. This resulted in Melissa being taken into the HSE, which stands for Health and Safety Executive. She was taken to Liznanog, a residential care facility for children, where she was at for over two weeks. In that span of time, she came and went as she pleased and only slept within the facility eight nights. Which is not During two weeks? During two weeks. Only eight nights. Hmm. When a social worker at the facility found a picture of Ronnie Dunbar under Melissa's pillow as she was making the bed, they became worried about the amount of time she was spending with the Dunbars. After another week of Melissa not spending time to settle within the center, social workers obtained a court order limiting her access to the Dunbar family. Now, to be more specific on that last sentence, on September 7th, 2006, Miss Fairley, who is her social worker, mm. was informed by the care home that Melissa had not stayed there the night before. She then went to the district court and obtained an order that basically said that Melissa was not permitted to see the Dunbars without the consent of the care facility. Mm-hmm. And she informed Melissa that this was because the staff was not able to engage with her in a therapeutic way because she was spending too much time with them. Yeah. Which, Melissa was like, okay, I get that, but then she she didn't take this very well. She started to uh, dye her hair jet black, and she was acting out against all of the care workers in the home. She began going missing with another resident at the center, and staff there suspected them of drinking and sniffing gas. Oh, jeez. However, what was more concerning was that Melissa and the other resident were found in bed with three teenage boys in a house in Kultrag in Sligo. When the guardi attempted to take the two girls back to the center, they cut their arms with glass and threatened to slit their wrists if they weren't brought back to the house with the boys. Oh, dear God. The following that day, some, that's some chip. The following day, September thirteenth, it was decided that Melissa would be taken to a foster home. She was brought to a family in Kinlau Co Litrim. Melissa was devastated to be taken so far away from Sligo, but agreed to stay with the family. According to the foster mother, Melissa was charming and polite and appeared to be settling well. That is, until she received a call at. 11.30 that night. Mm. After the call, she left the house barefoot, and when the foster mother tried to bring Melissa back inside, she told her that she would have her for assault and then ran off. 
Melissa knocked on the door of a neighboring home and asked to speak to her father, Ronnie Dunbar. Hmm? Oh. She told the elderly couple who answered her knocks that she had fallen asleep under a tree and didn't know her way home. That night, she stayed in the Manor Hamilton Garda Station in Leitrim with her social worker. The following day, she was brought back to Sligo, but once again ran away. Melissa was last seen on September 14th, 2006, around lunchtime, walking back towards that subdivision. Her disappearance hit all of the newspapers, and possible sightings were reported around Athlone and other parts of the Midlands. There were rumors that she had run away with a boy her age, which we would all like to hope was true. There were even some reports that she had gone back to London to visit family. However, none of these proved to be true, and the Guardi were soon convinced that Melissa had come to serious harm. After a year and a half, their fears were confirmed when on January 31st, 2008, Shirley Dunbar, who had taken her mother's maiden name, Shirley Conroy, and her boyfriend contacted the Garda and asked to have someone come to their home as it related to the disappearance of Melissa Mahan. When Detective Pauline McDonough arrived to the home, she found Shirley on the couch clutching her rosary and Samantha in a trance-like state, seated in an armchair. Apparently, Shirley's boyfriend had come home with her son and heard Samantha crying, I'm going to go to jail. According to Shirley, Samantha told her that she had just come home we're going way back. Mm-hmm. Samantha had told her that she had just come home from Youth Reach on a Thursday in September 2006 at around 5 p.m. Her younger sister, Heidi, had attempted to stop her from going upstairs, but she had pushed past her. When she walked into her father's bedroom, she saw her father behind Melissa, who was wearing her Beauty and the Beast nightgown, with his arm around her neck. She initially thought that her father was hugging Melissa, so she walked away. But upon seeing Heidi behind her crying, she walked back in and saw her father on top of Melissa, but then saw that his hands were around her neck. Oh, Jesus. She thought that they were having sex, but when her father jumped off the bed and ran out of the room to get something, she saw Melissa fall back to the bed lifeless, eyes closed, and face blue and purple. Shit. She ran to her friend and tried to resuscitate her by pressing on her chest. Uh, She did note that at the time that she was trying to resuscitate her, her chest was moving, but she was struggling for air, and a high-pitched noise was coming from her mouth. She screamed for Melissa, but she didn't respond. Ronnie Dunbar then returned with a sleeping bag. He instructed the girls to hold a necktie around Melissa's neck, while he covered her face with a pillow and suffocated her. Fuck. This is a rough one. He then put Melissa in the sleeping bag head first before he zipped it up and tied the end of the bag with the necktie. He carried Melissa roughly down the stairs and shoved her into the boot of his car, breaking her neck in the process. Like Samantha heard the snap of her neck. Oh my god. The girls were then told to get in the car, and he drove them 20 minutes to a spot along the banks of the River Bonnet. Uh, He pulled Melissa out of the car and drugged the sleeping bag to the water's edge. He then ordered Samantha to grab the bottom of the sleeping bag and help him bring it knee-deep into the water. She did as she was told out of fear, and on the count of three, they hefted 
the bag into the water. When Melissa's body um, within the sleeping bag did not sink as quickly as he wanted, Ronnie Dunbar began throwing rocks at it. After about five minutes, the sleeping bag slowly sank completely and the Dunbars left. He told his daughters that they were now accessories to Melissa's murder and that he would do the same thing to them if they ever told the guardie what he had done. He then acted like nothing had happened and drove his daughters to his regular football game. And the following day began to disinfect his car, burning the seat covers and all of Melissa's things. In February of 2008, Samantha Conroy, um, the middle daughter, Mm -hmm. contacted the guardie in Sligo and informed them, you know, kind of backing up her sister's story, that they would find Melissa's body in Loch Gill. Loch Gill. Um, She also told the guardie that Ronnie had sexually abused and raped her and her younger sister. Jesus. And Melissa. So now with two people saying, our dad did it. Yeah. It's over here. Then after an extensive search by the Garda divers, bone fragments and teeth were found in shallow water close together, just as Samantha had told them. Further downstream, a torn blue sleeping bag, a pale Beauty and the Beast nightgown, and a necktie were found on the shore of the river. Okay, side note, Ronnie Dunbar did have a history of relationships with the young women. His ex-wife, Lisa Conroy, who is a mother of his three daughters, mm. was just 15 years old oh my. when he met and pursued her. How old was he? Old enough to already have a wife and a kid. Oh, fuck. Because he met her because she was babysitting his kid. Oh, no. Um, Lisa had... Yeah, right. She had also been in the care of a children's home and felt that he initially treated her very well. He had been, as she said, like a savior to her. But then he began controlling and abusing her, especially during her pregnancies, resulting in the miscarriage of one of the children. While he would abuse her, he actually never laid a hands on his girls when they were younger. Um, and she claimed that she uh, that he also had affairs during the relationship. When the abuse became too much for her, she left, leaving her children in his care. And when she came back for them, he refused to give her any custody. Mm, man. Over the course of the investigation, it was found that Ronnie Dunbar had moved with his three daughters from the UK for multiple reasons. One... First and foremost, he and Shirley had been shot by a drug dealer because he had given evidence against the man. Oh, dear. They were then placed under witness protection where Ronnie Dunbar took his mother's maiden name for his own and became Ronnie McManus. Hmm. Under this witness protection, they moved to Scotland for a short time before ultimately giving that up and returning to his hometown of Sligo where he could no longer uh, keep out of trouble. His criminal history uh, dates back to 1981 when he was up on charges of criminal damage, burglary, and larceny, accounts of assault, robbery with violence, theft, shoplifting, and drug charges. With all of that, he was only sentenced once in his life, and that was in 1982 for the theft of a car. Wow. Yeah. Um, Okay, so after reports of body parts being found in the river, news outlets flocked to get stories out. Members of the Dunbar family willingly opened up about what happened, including Ronnie Dunbar himself. 
During one newspaper interview, Shirley mentioned that her father and Melissa had been sexually active with each other and that Melissa was even pregnant, having seen the pregnancy test herself. In Ronnie Dunbar's first interview, um, this is what he addressed, saying that he was not a sex offender. He had done a lot of things, but he was not a pervert. And that he had gone out of his way to be a father figure to Melissa. He then anonymously told the newspaper that he had been a facilitator to get Melissa to go with Child Protective Services. But that she was being more wild and acting out. Mm. He then threw his daughter Samantha under suspicion by saying that his other daughter Heidi told him Samantha had hit Melissa over the head with a rock after an argument during a camping trip. Apparently, Samantha did this because she thought Melissa stole her stash of cocaine. And he claimed that authorities were using him as a scapegoat for their negligence. He then claimed that Shirley's confessions about what he supposedly did to Melissa was because she was mad that he'd had a new girlfriend and had kicked her out of the house. Oh my god. Even claiming that he never had a criminal record, even though... Uh Clearly, he does. (laughs) These interviews with Ronnie Dunbar came to an end with his arrest in April of 2008. This came uh, with a DNA proof that the remains found in the river were those of Melissa Matten. The guard eye had also managed to get a hold of Melissa's phone records, and Ronnie Dunbar was in contact with her the day that she was reported missing. Mm. And actually, both of their phone records were pulled. Over 18% of the calls from Dunbar's phone between July and September, and 52% of the text messages were to Melissa. Um. As opposed to 7% of the calls and 21% of the texts to his girlfriend at the time, Angelique. Ew. Also, um, texts and phone calls were exchanged around the time that, you know, Melissa had gone missing, which would explain that call that she got at 11.30 p.m. Yeah. The day before it happened. When Ronnie Dunbar was pulled over by the guardie, he was informed that he would be brought to the station on suspicion of involvement in the murder of Melissa Mahan. Like, he he wasn't told exactly that they had DNA proof. Oh, okay. But it was just under suspicion. Right. Several hours later, however, search warrants were issued on the houses that Ronnie Dunbar had lived in during Melissa's disappearance. There were two, by the way. Oh, okay. He lived in one house... And then he moved across the street, but kept the key to the other house. Is that legal? Does he still own the other one? No. Okay. They were, like, renting. Ah. Anyway, they were both being considered crime scenes. His six pit bulls were removed from one of the properties before the search was conducted. During the search, they found boxes with holes in them, as well as binoculars in one of the boxes. They also found a hole in a mattress that led to the box spring, which is just big enough for a small girl to fit into. So, the only reason why I included this part was because I thought it was very condemning that they found binoculars in one of the boxes, because my brain my brain is like, oh, he was watching for... Melissa to go to the other house so he could let her in and hide her. Oh, I don't like that. Yeah. 
but they didn't go into detail, so I don't know. Yeah, the only thing you can do with information like that is wildly speculate. And that that is exactly what I'm doing. I'm wildly speculating that he was watching the other house because that's the house that she knew he lived in, mm-hmm. and that he would either go let her in and he was hiding her, or he would bring her over to the house that he was currently living when, in, and she would just sleep under the mattress. That's insane. Why? 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 Because they had that order that she was not to see the Dunbars. Yeah. When he arrived at the station, he was uncooperative with the officers, repeating that he was doing his best to get Melissa help. Ugh. He denied any and everything they asked uh, regarding the story that his daughters told, and at the end of the questioning, refused to say anything else. He was then brought to a special sitting with a district court and formally charged with the murder. He was placed in custody to await his trial. On April 21st, 2009, the trial was held with a jury of 12, where they had been read the charges of murder and threats to kill his own daughter. Ronnie Dunbar refused to go over the book of evidence prior to the trial. So as each piece of evidence was brought up, he was furiously writing notes to his attorneys and making them question the validity and reliability of each piece of evidence That's why that you the go witnesses over presented. beforehand, so you don't have to do what? Okay. So the forensic evidence presented was the skeletal remains found, all 65% of it. They did not even find the full skeleton. They only found oh. 65%. A sleeping bag with a large tear in the side, a nightgown, and a man's tie. The skeleton presented uh, showed that it was likely that of a teenage girl. The majority of the bones showed signs of animal presence though which you know it had been mm-hmm. a year and a half gonna happen five teeth were recovered along with the lower jaw and upon comparison to dental records it was determined that there was a high probability that this was melissa Mahan. one of the teeth had been used to get dna samples from which were then compared to blood samples from both mary and frederick Mahan, and confirmed that it was their daughter During the trial, when asked to identify the tie and nightgown found, Shirley confirmed that her two sisters had the nightgowns and one had been lent to Melissa. She confirmed that she thought the necktie was her father's because she thought that she had been with him when he bought it. Mm. On the witness stand, Heidi gave almost the exact same witness statement that Shirley and Samantha gave, give or take a few details. She then apologized to the court for giving multiple versions of the events that happened that night, giving the reason that she was young and under the sway of her father. Yeah. Basically, what she said was that she was so in love with her father, she was so um, idyllic of him, that he would do anything so that she would feel love. Yeah. He planted ideas in her head of what to say and, in fact, even threatened to kill himself. Ugh. After 21 days, the state concluded their case. Um, the jury was escorted out so the Dunbar's attorney could make an application to the judge saying there wasn't enough evidence to convict his client. He claimed that the stories told by Heidi and Samantha were inconsistent with each other's. They were so inconsistent, specifically Heidi's. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, they were just inconsistent. And if they were to take Samantha's into account there was no indication that ronnie dunbar had been violent or done harm to melissa and at best manslaughter would be a more appropriate 
you know, charge than murder. The judge told him it was completely up to the jury what evidence they used to come to their decision on. Mm -hmm. Because basically all they have is the girl's words. Right. There's really not a lot of evidence. Ronnie Dunbar's attorney told the court that they had no evidence to present and closing statements were made. The jury were instructed that to find Ronnie Dunbar guilty of murder, they must find that he had the intent to kill or seriously injure Melissa Mahan. If they did not find this intent but agreed that he did kill her, then they may find him guilty of manslaughter. But the evidence must prove beyond reasonable doubt that this was the case. They also were warned that the daughters who gave the testimony were accessories after the fact and could be considered accomplices. Thus, their testimony should be considered with caution. Disgusting. The jury deliberated for the rest of the day on Monday, May 25th, 2009, going over all of the evidence presented to them and the witnesses' statements. Before the judge was about to request a majority verdict, the jury announced that they made their decision. Ronnie Dunbar was not guilty of murder but was guilty of manslaughter. Mm. He was also found not guilty of threats to kill his daughter. Uh, The attorney for Ronnie Dunbar stated that they were ready to proceed with sentencing. However, the judge stated that he needed to review the guidelines for sentencing regarding manslaughter of a 14-year-old girl. (laughs) They reconvened on July 6, 2009. Two months? Because it was in May when they... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got this. Yeah. Yeah. They reconvened on July 6, 2009 to present their arguments to the judge and for sentencing. The state attorney announced that they wanted to read a victim impact statement from Mary Mahan. However, the judge felt that this would be ingenuine given a treatment of Melissa from her family and their lack of care during her disappearance. The judge also said on sentencing that he had to take into account a number of factors, including the age of the victim, her vulnerability, the way the body was disposed of, and the cover-up of the crime, as well as the criminal history of Ronnie Dunbar, and just his complete and utter lack of remorse for what he had done. Absolutely. The judge decided that with all of this, that a life sentence was justified for manslaughter. Mm-hmm. So he was sentenced to life in jail. Good. In 2011, Ronnie Dunbar's lawyers argued that there was insufficient evidence against him in an appeal. However, the Court of Criminal Appeal refused their appeal on all points raised to, like, mm-hmm. nah, you're still in jail. <laughs> Stay forever. <laughs> forever. Then in 2012, he was taken to court yet again for the rape of his youngest daughter, Heidi. Oh, my God. During that trial, she claimed that he started molesting her when she was only eight years old, when all she wanted from her father was love and affection. She even said that she felt guilty for introducing her friend Melissa to him, because if she hadn't, then Melissa would still be here. Oh, Ronnie Dunbar was found guilty of this charge and was sentenced to 15 years. However, he still continues to deny the rape allegations and Melissa's murder. But at least he's behind bars. And that's my story. Are you ready to jump off a bridge now? That's so sad. (laughs) It's so... I just... Because, like, it's just... It really feels like the system kind of failed her. It does. Because, like, her parents failed her, and then people who acted like they were going to help her failed her, and then killed her. And then... 
Oh, that's just so sad. That's why I said you ready to jump off a bridge now? I'm surprised that I've never heard of that. I was going to say it's still kind of recent, but I guess now it's not that recent since it happened in 2006. 14 years old. Huh. Oh, no. The story is as old as she was. Oh, that's sad. Uh. Because I was thinking when you started that she wouldn't have been that much older than us. Yeah. I do want to mention there were a lot of things that I left out that if you all want to know more, please listen to the uh, episode 40 of the podcast Mens Rea. That is M-E-N apostrophe S. R-E-A. So, Grace, what is your story? So we have something a little, hopefully, a little happier. Uh, well, um, so this story is a little bit different for me, for parent, it's not really paranormal, it's more of a sort of leaning towards the conspiracy, because it's not true crime, but but it's like more conspiracy-ish. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, but it's, I feel like it's just weird enough for me to treat it as sort of like a story. Oh, definitely. Because I just think it's super interesting. And we make the podcast, so we make the rules. I, I can do it. Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. I agree. So yes. the story that I'm covering is one people have probably heard of. It's Peter Bergman. I have never heard of that. <laughs> I, think, I think you'll know it when I get into it. So Okay. My sources are an Irish Times article by Rosita Boland, a Vice.com article by Francisco Garcia, uh, Reddit, obviously, medium.com, yes. Yes. pressandjournal.co.uk, and Wikipedia. All right. I don't really use Wikipedia very much. It was just to, it was my last resort just to go through and make sure I had like all of the like Everything, yeah. big facts. So. Friday, June 12, 2009, a tall, thin man with short gray hair and glasses was captured on CCTV cameras at Derry Bus Station. Okay. He was wearing a black leather jacket, carrying two bags. One is like a hold-all, like, sort of semi, like, duffel bag-ish bag. Yeah. Uh, the ones that have, like, two handles, and it's like this, and it's, like, round, but not, you know what I mean. Yeah. Okay, now I know what you're, like, you're, like, um... Like it's like not, a like a gym duffel. Yeah, bag. yeah, kind of like that. Um, not like just, an overnight it just, duffel like, looks bag. Nicer. Like, yes. And he had a uh, laptop style bag, like okay, crossbody. Yeah. He boarded a mid-afternoon bus from Derry to Sligo. The bus arrived at six twenty-eight p.m. and the man took a taxi to the center of town. The first hotel the man went to was full, so he headed to the Sligo City Hotel on Quay Street, where he paid for three nights up front in cash. Ooh, that's always sketch. <laughs> when writing in the register, he listed his address as Einstetterson 154472 Vienna, Austria, which made sense given his German accent, and listed yeah. his name as Peter Bergman. The next day was pretty uneventful. He went to the general post office at 10.49 a.m. where he bought eight stamps and some airmail stickers. He ran some errands around town and arrived back to the hotel to eat and occasionally go outside and smoke, which was also captured on CCTV footage. He kept to himself for the most part, didn't really talk to anyone. But on Sunday, he got a taxi, map in hand, he was like ready to go. The taxi mm-hmm. driver, Gerard Higgins, said Bergman pointed at Strand Hill on the map and said he was looking for a place to swim. When Higgins told Bergman that 
Strand Hill is a surfing beach and suggested going to Ross's Point instead. Bergman sat in the front seat at Higgins' suggestion, and Higgins drove him to both beaches so he could check them out. Nice. On the way, Bergman asked if there were buses going out uh, to either one of them, especially Ross's Point, since that's the one that he ended up going to. Yeah. Which there were, like, one an hour, because uh, it was a pretty popular uh, destination. And you were with water is a popular destination. Right. <laughs> uh, when they got to Ross's Point, Higgins stopped the, at the car park entrance to the beach, and instead of getting out, Bergman looked around, seemingly satisfied, and then asked Higgins to take him to the bus station. That's all. He, he like, just stepped out. He didn't. He's like, ah, yes. Literally, the beach, that's it. He the was sand, like, sand, the water. He's just looking around. All right. All right. Next. <laughs> Good to go. Take me to the bus station. Um, just after one p.m. on Monday, June fifteenth, Peter Bergman checked out of the hotel and left his key at reception. When he went to the hotel reception to return his key, he was wearing a long-sleeved pale blue shirt, black tank top. Over okay, 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 because it was buttoned in a black tank top. Oh, okay, okay. Um, dark pants and a black leather jacket. This He's time, being a badass. This time, he was carrying three bags. Oh. Yes. Where'd the extra bag come from? So there's the, the sort of duffel bag that he had in the bag with the laptop bag that he had when he was checking in, and a purple plastic bag, which is, like, the biggest part of this story that I'll get to later. No taxi driver reported taking him to the short distance to the Sligo bus station, so it's assumed that he just walked there uh, via Quay Street, because it, it really wasn't a long walk. It was, like, ten minutes. Yeah. So he went to the bus station via Quay Street, Wine Street, and then stopped at Quayside Shopping Center and waited in the doorway for a couple of minutes. And oh, mm, Why? I don't know. They no don't idea. Know. Okay. And then at 116, he left the Quayside Shopping Center and walked along Wine Street in the direction of the bus station, still carrying all three bags. However, when he was caught on CCTV arriving at the bus station at 132, he no longer had the black uh, the black hold all bag, like the, gel- the duffel bag. Also, 132, the manager of the little bus station cafe sold Peter Bergman a cappuccino and a toasted sandwich. And he sat at one of the few tables near a woman who he didn't talk to. But during Mm -hmm. that time, he sat at the table and took a piece of paper out of his pocket, wrote something on it, and then tore it up and threw it away. Nice. Bergman asked the depot instructor what time the next bus was leaving for Ross's Point, which was at 2.40 p.m. He didn't thank the depot instructor, just turned and walked away. And the depot instructor, Vincent Dunbar, said that Bergman looked stressed or maybe in pain. Oh, okay. At 4 p.m., Peter Bergman was seen on the beach with only a black bag over his shoulder. So where'd the duffel go now? The duffel was gone when he got to the bus station. So he... Oh, so he has the black bag and the plastic bag? Apparently just the black bag. Only the black bag. I know. At 5 p.m., he was seen near the yacht club to the at the far yeah. left of what the locals called the first beach. At 9.10 p.m., he was seen by two women carrying something, but they weren't sure what it was. 20 minutes later, he was seen on the beach by a husband and wife, Dermot and Paula Leif, who had driven to the beach to watch the sunset. Okay. They said that Bergman had his pants rolled up to his knees and he was wearing a black jacket. They said he was, so he was like stepping 
on the beach, like, in the water. Oh, okay, yeah, so that's why his pants were rolled up. Okay, makes sense. But yep. they said that his, his steps were just very deliberate in a really strange way. Like, he, he seems like his steps had to be just right. I mean, of course, when you're walking on sand. Like, he seemed to be moving, like, in a side-to-side, like, specific motion. Like, his feet just had to be in specific spots. Yeah. You know, kind of like if you're trying not to step on a crack. There's so many of those on the beach. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, at 10.30 p.m. and again at 11.30 p.m., Bergman was seen by two more people, both times with a plastic bag, the purple plastic bag, and still wearing his glasses, which is important later. Ten minutes later, he was seen wearing his glasses, sitting on one of... Sitting? Sitting. Sitting. He was sitting. What? Sitting. Sitting. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) Sitting on one of the benches that overlooks the first beach. The last time anyone reported seeing Peter Bergman was about 11.50 p.m., about half an hour before high tide was supposed to arrive. He was again carrying a plastic bag and walking along the edge of the ocean. Collecting seashells Rats. in the plastic bag? I'm just going to start uh, throwing theories out. I don't know. No. <laughs> well, actually, nobody knows. Really? Around 6 a.m. June 16th, so this is the next day, mm-hmm. 2009, Arthur Kinsella and his son Brian went to Ross's Point so Brian could train for a triathlon. He ran ahead of his father, but something caught Arthur's eye on the beach. Uh, to his right, close to the rocks. And that's when he realized it was a person laying face down, appearing to have drowned. He also noticed that there weren't any footprints anywhere around the body, which appeared to have washed up. Mm -hmm. He walked around the body to make sure the man was dead and placed his hand on the man's ankle, which was marble cold. Marble cold? Marble cold. That's what they said. Okay. I would have said ice, but, you know, obviously... I mean, to be fair, that is um, a very specific cold like it's hard solid it's hard yeah um so this man was peter bergman i'm not gonna leave it in suspense who it was what um could have never guessed arthur kinsella said the lord's prayer over him and then called guardy sergeant terry mcmahon was the guarda who arrived first and he noticed the man was oddly dressed for summer he had on a pair of purple purple and pink striped speedo type swimming trunks with navy underpants over the top and a navy t-shirt tucked in like a lot of navy yeah and a waterproof quartz watch which was found on his left wrist and i think that's interesting because two sources said that the man was naked but he he wasn't he was just half naked Gardy remained on ross's point beach and searched for the rest of his clothes which were found neatly folded on a rock on the beach they found this is a lot. It's a lot. Okay. Yep. They Work. found Here for um, black leather fin comfort shoes, size 44, manufactured in 2002 in Germany, dark socks, a black leather CNA jacket, navy CNA chino trousers, a black sleeveless Tommy Hilfiger sweater, a black leather belt uh, with, with, called Key West USA, made in Italy. Distributed in various pockets were 140 euros in notes and 9 euros in coins. In an envelope, there was a packet of tissues, 55 milligrams of aspirin tablets made by Bayer, manufactured in the Czech Republic and distributed in Germany. Hand-suplast sticking plaster, so band-aids. Yeah. 
uh, a bar of hotel soap in an unopened blue plastic wrapper that had that was printed with mild soap hotel care and when they looked this up it wasn't a brand made or stocked in any hotel in ireland so this guy travels a lot it sounds like one interesting thing um one of the weirdest things which might not be totally weird to be honest but all of the clothes found on the rock and the ones he was wearing all had the labels cut out I mean, some people don't like the feel of the labels on their right, skin. Right, which is why I don't think that it's super weird. I just think it's interesting. Yeah. Because I rip a lot of the tags out of shit all the time because I don't like... The tag, like, yeah. itchy. It's yeah, itchy. I get it. What they didn't find, what they did not find, were his glasses, the 10 cent stamps he bought in the post office, the long-sleeved blue shirt he was wearing when he left Sligo City Hotel, mm-hmm. the black shoulder bag, and the purple plastic bag. There's also no ID of any kind, which is double interesting, because it seems he didn't have any ID with him in the first place. Nice. Because hotels, I know, hotels are required in Ireland to, like, they're legally required to ask for ID, which this one did not. Okay. Clive Killigan conducted the autopsy on Peter Bergman on June 17th, 2009 at Sligo University Hospital, and the results weren't actually made public until April 14th, 2010, but anyway, there were some interesting results. First, even though Bergman was washed up on the beach, there was no sign of drowning. Okay, that is weird. Yeah. Second, his teeth were in great condition. He'd obviously had dental work done before, which I'll bring up later. Okay. And, but the biggest shock was that Peter Bergman had prostate cancer. Oh. Yeah, it was so advanced that Killigan believed that not only would Bergman know about his illness as it had spread to his bones, chest, and lungs, but determined that he would have only had two weeks to live at the most. That's sad. And the cause of death was actually listed as a heart attack, so no sign of foul play. There was a standard toxicology report, but it didn't test for a bunch of things, including any banned substances. So despite the amount of pain he was most likely in because cancer is spread throughout his entire body yeah there was no evidence of any medication in his system really That's... yeah none um peter Good. bergman was buried in sligo cemetery six people attended the funeral four were guarded and other two were the undertaker and the man who dug the grave oh the plot that peter bergman is buried in was brought was bought by the health service executive to bury unclaimed bodies the one he was in can take three people. There was only already one body in there, but there won't be a third because they've been instructed not to, just in case there need it, that the body needs to be exhumed. Okay. In late July 2009, the guardie covering the case realized that nobody was coming forward looking for the missing family member or friend. But they, this is when they also realized that the man had given a false name and address. Oh, look at that. Yes. Some sources said that the address he provided doesn't exist, like, at all, because the, like, actual postal code that Austria has doesn't go past a certain number, and his is, like, way Way past, yeah. Like, way past it. But one or two other sources said that it led to a vacant lot, but, I mean, if it doesn't exist, there's not going to be a vacant lot, I'm just saying. Either way, it seems like he went out of his way to to conceal his identity, and he appeared to have planned to disappear in um, at sea. Okay. Um, once it became evident that Peter Bergman was not his real name, 
they sort of hit a wall. It was impossible to figure out how he arrived in Ireland or where he entered the country. The name he gave didn't appear on any passenger manifest and for foot passengers on ferries from Britain and, and there were no identity checks there. So there are so many folders and boxes at the Sligo Garda station for this case and at one point 10 people were working on it at once. Oh wow, that's a lot. Dur- yeah, it was a lot. So during this investigation, it was noted that he left the Sligo City Hotel 13 times while he stayed there, each time with that purple plastic bag, and each time he would return without it. So does he, like, empty the bag and then stick it in his pocket? That's one of the theories. There's one say, There's one theory that he just would empty it, put it in his pocket, come back. There's another one saying that his bags are just filled with these purple bags and he would just take each one and dump it. But nobody Possible. knows for sure. Possible. Um, no CCTV footage shows where he went, so nobody knows if he was meeting someone, if he was disposing of whatever was in the bag, or even whether he had a bunch of bags or just one. No, like Nobody knew. Mm-hmm. Detective Inspector John O'Reilly said in all the footage that they do have of him, He's not seen with a cell phone or in conversation with anyone other than just basic transactions at, like, the hotel or the bus station. Mm-hmm. So he's obviously not passing stuff on to anybody he, he knows because he doesn't seem to know anybody there. And when they got CCTV footage from the post office, there was an issue with the system and footage disappeared. So there's no way to know if he sent any mail while he was there. Okay. That... So... So that was like eight postage stamps that he got. He probably intended to mail something out, but they don't know. Yeah. He also didn't have access to a car, so if he disposed of anything, it would have been in town. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, some people, Guardy included, say that it's almost like Bergman knew where all of the cameras were and that he was just weirdly good at avoiding, avoiding them. them. Yeah, like crazy good. Like they He's never a master. And on top of that, non, not one member of the public ever came forward to say they noticed him disposing of the contents of a large purple plastic bag 13 separate times in broad daylight. Yeah. Sergeant Terry McMahon himself actually said that he thinks Bergman had training of some kind, possibly ex-military or ex-police, because in relation to the cameras, like how he was able to go about his business, um, it just seemed like very methodical. As yeah. if he knew where where to hide his personal belongings that could have identified him, if that's what he was even doing. Detective Ray Moldering thinks that Sligo was a specific destination and that everything Bergman did had a purpose, even if they can't figure it out yet. So the main question that people tend main questions that people tend to have are like why Sligo? Like, some people say that he obviously wasn't from there because he took a cab to the center of town because which was a 10-minute walk, but yeah. also he ha- did have two bags to carry, and he was in poor health, so, like, mm. Yeah, I mean, that's but not something like, that. Right, but also, why dispose of all of his belongings? Why give a false name and false address? Like, did he ever post those 10 letters, and, like, who were they to if he did? Mm-hmm. And did he actually intend to die by drowning? And how did his cardiac arrest come on? And... If anyone is ever going to come forward, like, who who the fuck was he? But also, I want to know if he could be identified by his dental records, if they found out where he was actually from. 
I don't know. Unless you're pulling all the dental records from that town. But the thing is, nobody knows where he's actually, actually from. from. Yeah. So there are so many theories and so many threads on Reddit, like over 10, like de- just dedicated to him. Some people think that he could have been a spy or a gangster on the run. Other people say he was trying to claim a life insurance policy for his loved ones, which I would think they would need a body for and they would have to, you would have to be identified, like your family specifically, so they could report you as dead. They would have to know. Yeah. Right? Uh, there's a theory that the whole thing was a hoax. Mmm. Is there still a body? Have they exhumed to see there was, um, that it was all made up for a documentary about Peter Bergman's death that came out in 2013 called The Last Days of Peter Bergman, which doesn't make any sense because there's a literal dead person, um, mm-hmm. and both Ireland, Guardi, and Interpol have backed this up, so that'd be, that'd be a pretty fucked up hoax. Yes, it um, would. The most wild ones, though, are that one, he was an extraterrestrial human being who was lost on Earth. And two, that he was a child of a Nazi criminal who wanted to hide his identity because the children of Nazi criminals often lived with uh, lives of anonymity, like wishing to hide from the notoriety of their parents' crimes, which I don't know about that. Let's stick with alien. It's it's always (laughs) aliens. So along with that documentary that I mentioned earlier, there's also A Dream of Dying, a play telling the Bergman story in reverse by Teresa Nealon. The Irish Times also produced a podcast about the case, which I haven't had the chance to listen to, but I'm going to do that tomorrow while I'm working. Nice. So it seems to me that, I mean, if it was just like my opinion, it seems like he knew that his life was ending soon, and I think he thought his body would wash out to sea because of the high tide that was supposed to be coming in that night. And I don't know why he didn't want to be remembered, like, whether he was, I don't know, living life on the run, or if he was a spy or whatever, or whether he was afraid to, uh, whether he, he felt like he would be a burden for his family, or, or, I don't know. Or I wonder if he didn't have a family. Or he might not have had a family. But all of his, I, I just I think it's so interesting that somebody would want to just disappear, like, have no... Nobody have no memory of them, or... Yeah. It's it's just so interesting. I don't know. Um, but I think in, in wanting to be anonymous, he kind of achieved the exact opposite. In 2015, the French newspaper Le Monde reported that they had contacted the Austrian police about the case, and the Austrian police commented that the Guardian had never contacted them. Those liars. They know. Well, no. The Guardian had contacted Interpol, but they hadn't contacted them. And Lamonde also reported that there's no Interpol notice for Peter Bergman or whoever, whatever his real name is, mm-hmm. stating that the body didn't fall into the two Interpol categories of either missing person or wanted person. Yeah. You mean they don't have a category for dead person? We don't know who it is? Right. Uh, and they said it's actually up to the like his country of origin to report him as missing Whatever country that might be. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a smart-ass remark, but I can't. Yeah. You're the sassy one, not me. (laughs) In August of 2020, Hugh Morrison from Iverness 
helped create a detailed post-mortem depiction of the man who went by Peter Berkman. He said he doesn't think anyone should be left nameless or unidentified, and he used several high-quality stock images of human faces to recreate the man's features as they were shown in both the mortuary photograph and the CCTV stills. And he said by using like clearer, better quality images and digital imaging software that like once they're edited to match the other images that it's just more clear. It kind of looks like a passport picture. Okay. So. And he's doing that to like see if people can identify him? Yes. Uh, and the case will actually remain open until the day, if ever, uh, when P- Peter Bergman is finally identified. Any information that could assist in identifying him is asked to be shared with Sligo Garda um, or by logging a case with Interpol through their website. But yeah, that is my story. Um, nobody knows what happened or who he was, but um, so it's it's just, uh, yeah. That is so weird though, but like, I'm sure it's not that unnormal for just a complete stranger to just to check in somewhere with cash, lie about their name, lie about their address, and then dispose all of their of all of their belongings, leave bags randomly, probably mm-hmm. throw mm-hmm. them away, mm-hmm. and de- mm-hmm. that's totally normal. That's and then, totally normal. Um, also, try to wash themselves out to sea, and then uh, it's and really the washing yeah. themselves out to sea. <laughs> <laughs> that's the weird. Part. That's the weird part. <laughs> Unless they just want it to be fish food, they just want to be food for the fishes. I, I think that was his plan, uh, but, and part of me feels a little bad telling this story because uh, he obviously did not want to be remembered. So well. I feel like this is probably going against his wishes. I just think, like, it's likely, like, you know, he was 60, he was around 65 years old. Yeah. And I saw one thing that's, uh, one of the sources I had say, like, you don't get to be like 65 without meeting people and forming connections. So there's got to be somebody out there who misses him. Yeah. Even if they... Unless he completely alienated everyone in his life. Which is entirely possible. People do it all the time. Which is entirely possible. I don't know. That just... uh, Our stories this week, man. I know. Ugh. If you all enjoyed that and... If you didn't. If you didn't. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Myths and Misfortunes. Or Twitter at Miss Misfortune, or you can search for us using our full name, Miss and Misfortunes. We'll be there. <laughs> we'll be there. Be there, be square. <laughs> be there, be square. <laughs> we are square. <laughs> we are very square. <laughs> you can also send us an email to mythsandmisfortunes at gmail.com. And please check out our website, uh, mythsandmisfortunes.com. We have been gradually getting more visitors to our website, so thank you, guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I just that <laughs> Our theme music was composed by Mickey and Fulbright, and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their websites can be found in the description below. And please don't forget to rate, 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 review. Review, review. Subscribe. Subscribe, subscribe. subscribe. Uh, Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Bye. Bye.